Leonard Cohen suggested there is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. This viral crack gives us a chance to create something new and better. So let's talk about back to different and let the light in. I'm sitting next to and separated by about 3,000 miles from Catherine Sherlock, another wanderer whom we stumbled across each other on the internet. And then we were um, podcasts passing in the night for a while due to scheduling mix-ups. So we're finally here together in the same place, at least virtually. So Catherine, what I'd like you to do is help the people who will listen understand your story. How did you get here? How did I get here? You mean in terms of my work, Mac? Um, you work your life, which um, I'm guessing, given what I do know about you, is that there's a strong congruence there. There's a strong congruence. And I, I guess what got me here is was there wasn't a strong congruence for a long time. I really felt like I had a, a foot in two different worlds in my life. And one was kind of the inner world and following the call of the authentic self, as, as I like to call it. Mm-hmm. And the other was all that outer stuff, and especially the work stuff. And I didn't really know how to bring it together. I was working as an environmental consultant. I have a, a master's in environmental studies. And I had done that for a long time. And slowly I started to lose my passion for it a little bit, even though I, even though it's still really important work and I still really love it. Um, I also found that I wasn't able to have the impact I wanted. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel like I was making a big enough change in that area. And it was as though I couldn't have certain conversations as an environmental consultant. I couldn't have the bigger conversations that I wanted to have. And then things sort of changed um, in Canada over the years. Um, a lot of the budgets, environmental budgets had gotten cut. So my work sort of kept getting, kept changing and changing and changing. Yeah. And finally, I looked at it and thought, wait a minute, what really you know, if I'm taking this in a direction, different direction, what's that going to look like? And I looked at mindfulness because I have a tremendous background in that already, um, more than much more than average. And um, I did go into that for a little bit. And then I found myself bored because, again, it wasn't a big enough conversation. Right. And I really wanted to be um, talking about transformation at a bigger level. But one of the interesting things that happened when I was in mindfulness is I was reading some a background book on it, and it was looking at a company. It was looking at um, Monsanto, which I don't know if you're familiar with Monsanto. Sure. Not the most, um, not the most ethical maybe company. <laughs> but what was interesting, what was really interesting, is they actually had a mindfulness program come in at one point, and. They had been talking, they had a bunch of stakeholders talking with them at that time, saying, please, please, please end the Terminator seed program. And the Terminator seeds are seeds where you have, you buy the seeds, like farmers buy the seeds, and they won't, uh, the next year they have to buy new seeds again. They can't get, so it's it's this thing where they stop plants from producing seeds. And of course, that's a, I mean, that's a hugely scary thing to introduce into our world because if it got widespread we'd be dead 
I mean, we, we need our plants to continue to produce seed <laughs> for our food and everything, right? So they had this program and they weren't listening. And then they the CEO brought this mindfulness program in and uh, they canceled the program. They started listening to the to the stakeholders and they canceled the program. So it was really interesting. But then a new CEO came in, checked out the mindfulness stuff <laughs> and everything <laughs> went back to the usual. But I thought it was really interesting because from the environmental perspective, there's a really uh, us them feeling in it. Mm-hmm. And there's always this push to get people to change, to get people to change. And here was this model of change from inside, of change without willpower, of change without push, change that was just natural and easy and, you know, improved. And that was what drew me into, yeah, this is the way I want to go. I don't want that away from that model of working so hard, away from that model of outside in. Now, how much of that um, program at Monsanto were you invite were you involved in? No, I wasn't. I, I just read I just read about the research okay. as I was doing. Yeah, I wasn't involved in that. Um, yeah, I, I just that wanted to make earlier. sure that I wasn't misapprehending and going merrily down the wrong road. Yeah, no, that was quite a while ago that that they had introduced it. Actually, I'm not. I can't. I can't think of the time frame right now. But yeah, it was quite a while ago. So, so it sounds like that was kind of the, the a spark for your direction change. Actually, it wasn't a spark as much as it was um, an affirmation. Okay. Yeah, it was an affirmation of it. When I read that research, it was like, oh, that's really interesting. That's, that is what I want in this is that to move people out of willpower and into, um, the, into development that is done a different way. And in development that is done, leadership development that is done from the inside out. So from that, that place where um, your, your framework for, for what you'd done, what you wanted to do was, was a different framework for leadership, how it develops, what it looks like, where it's focused, you know, all those pieces, because I work in leadership too, and we're not, we're not far, too far apart. Um, what did you do from there? How did you get to hear from there? Um, you know, it, it keeps changing and keeps deepening, to be honest. Um, you know, I looked at how leadership development is done mostly, and mostly it is outside in. So the common, the most common technique is trait theory. So somebody comes up with a list of must-have leadership traits. And they may get that from studying some leaders. They may get it from their own heads. I don't know, because every list I looked at is different. <laughs> like there's no common denominator in all these lists, except maybe communications. Mm-hmm. So somebody comes up with this list of must-have attributes, goes into a company and says, here's a list of must-have, must-have attributes. So if you adopt these, you will become, you know, a better leader. But it's a... It's completely, it's an outside-in approach, and it makes people feel really inauthentic. It makes them feel more disconnected from self. It often decreases self-esteem rather than increasing it. And at the end of the day, you spend all this effort in willpower 
Um, I'm not a big believer in in accomplishing things through, through willpower. I think we need to move through development that comes from lesser willpower and not more. And trait theory is very much based on willpower. Right. So, yeah. So, so moving into something that actually connects you more to self rather than disconnects you to self and empowers you. Well, I'm, I am old enough, seasoned enough. How's that? Um, like the wood in your, in your walls, in your uh, office there, <laughs> that I grew up in a world, at least for me, of um, the self-made man. I mean, there was even a, a phrase. And the, the, the concept was, as you were talking about traits, is that there, there was a sort of a, a checklist of traits to be successful, which though did not ostensibly say this, it sort of included things like greed, uh, included things like seeing other people as to be managed for your benefit, to not letting your emotions cloud your cognition so that you were not emotionally attached in the, in the uh, creation of what you did. All these sort of underlying assumptions, which I took as a white middle-class father was a businessman, mother was a homemaker world that I grew up in. But at some point in my life, it, it just felt so false and so uh, corrosive to me that it just, it just didn't stick anymore. Yeah. And I think that's the, the thing that, you know, there still is definitely that idea of leadership out there. And, and I call the difference between inner power and outer power, but there is a difference. There's a, a, a large segment of leaders wanting a different kind of leadership. They're wanting what I would call connected success. So then they come into it a lot of different ways. You know, some many get to a place where what they were doing to succeed doesn't work anymore. They find it kind of falling out, falling down around their ears. Or they have an urge that they just want more. You know, it's like this can't be all it is. I've got, okay, I've got the success and the things that were supposed to make me happy. And this is what I've been aiming for. But I want more. And now it's an opening up of a different kind of journey, a different kind of that connected success and looking at it and what that means and how that plays out in the world. And I think that's a really important thing because of the challenges that we're facing. If we don't have leaders move into that uh, kind of place of an elevated consciousness, I don't think we're going to be able to solve the, the issues coming at us. And, you know, leaders, on the other hand, even with the practical kind of running a business, um, those areas of things like creativity and innovation that are so important, being able to respond quickly, being resilient, those require a different way of functioning. And we have to delve into that as leaders to understand it and to, to grow it in ourselves. I, part of the part of the challenge for the leadership work I do, which is not again, is not dissimilar f from yours really at all, has a lot more in common, 
is that I think there is still a, um, a, a barrier of assumptions that sends a, a subtle and sometimes very loud um, tune, a melody. I'm a guitar player and singer, so I use a lot of musical metaphors that um, if you're if you're if you're not driven hard enough and if you don't drive other people hard enough that that you aren't really acting as a leader right and that model has been disproven by the research you know that that's kind of like the um and we have that in you know we have that as a belief system within ourselves is that we have to be really hard on ourselves we have to you know to push ourselves if we don't push ourselves who's going to do that and that has been shown in research to actually decrease our productivity, de yeah. decrease our capacities, that the opposite is true, that when we're happier, then we're, when we're functioning from a higher purpose, uh, um, th that's when we can tap into greater intelligence, into greater creativity and innovation. So it's kind of, you know, switching that, that mindset is a win all around because you, you can, you know, keep yourself miserable in life and miserable <laughs> as a leader, <laughs> but it seems it's not, it's not actually working to your benefit on any level. And you, what you're saying about the research is so important because I don't blame people for like wanting to see where this comes from. I, mean, I get that. I, um, I love to research. I really do. And there is such a large body of research that suggests that things like happiness and fun connect positively to productivity mm -hmm. and that things like misery, <laughs> though they may drive you to like steal food or something, don't connect to profit. And, and I don't mean that just by money. I mean that by our spiritual profit, our emotional profit, all the things that, that like build us better. Uh, are you familiar with the writer H.L. Mencken? Uh, no, don't think I've heard of him, her. Yeah, H.L. Mencken, M-E-N-C-K-E-N. He was a wonderful, he was kind of like, um, he was kind of like Mark Twain. A little cynical, a little sarcastic, but boy, could he write. And I don't know if it affects Canadians as much as Americans, but we're still children of Puritanism in a whole bunch of ways. And H.L. Mencken said Puritanism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere is happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, most of the, fortunately, most of the leaders that I deal with are well past that that point but you know it does get into our it does get under our skin it gets into our belief systems and, and and unconsciously right these kinds of ideas are still there and so that is part of weeding out that that kind of being able to um move beyond a fear-based oops a fear-based kind of uh i mean we we are functioning fear-based and the more you realize that as an individual the more you can become aware of it and actually begin to move out of it. But it takes that, that, that actually recognizing it within yourself to be able to do that. You can't, you can't change something until you come into awareness. Absolutely. And in, in, in the, in the 
in the in the whole human story, which is considerable, uh, not compared to like the Earth or dinosaurs, but for our, our lifetimes, we've only had relative safety for a very small portion. We've been we've been suitably frightened for for much of our story on Earth, and I think that that baggage may be part of it as well. Yeah, for sure. We're carrying that that whole, I mean, I always, I, I often talk about if you look at this, this lineage, this human lineage, this human story that's going on, you step in to an ongoing story for maybe a chapter, mm-hmm. right? Each of us steps in for maybe a chapter of this ongoing story. So, and the beliefs of that story are embedded in you before you're old enough to be even aware of anything, right? To be able to have the choice of how that embeds in you. And so we really don't know because that story has been playing out and we're, we're within that story. We really don't know our own potential and our own capacity. And that's why I think it's, it's really important to be having a bigger conversation. Um, you know, we've seen from purpose that companies that embed purpose into the organization do better on all, on many, on many measurements. They do better. Um, they certainly do better profit wise, mm-hmm. but they also solve a lot of the problems that um, organizations struggle with, like engagement and things like that, motivation. But I think there's another level of that to go to. I think that I call it elevating purpose. And, you know, when I talk about consciousness and leadership, if you think of consciousness as a high-rise building. Okay. And you're, if you're on the first floor, say it's a high-rise building in New York, and this is actually a borrowed metaphor, but a high-rise building in, in New York, and you're on the first floor, and it's a hot summer day, and the garbage hasn't maybe been picked up yet. And so you're smelling the garbage. You're, you know, there's lots of noise around you. There's a lot of traffic. There's a lot of air pollution. Um, as you go up the floors, each floor, you, you have a different experience. Mm-hmm. And when you get up to the penthouse, it's a very different experience. <clears throat> on the ground floor, you may not, you don't have perspective on the ground floor, right? You can't look out and go, Oh my gosh, look, there's a river like over there. You, if you live only on the ground floor, you may not realize that river is there ever. The air quality changes. It's, it's cleaner. It's quieter. It's, and so you can see things that you couldn't see on the ground floor as you're, as you rise up in consciousness and it opens up different opportunities and choice points that you didn't have on the ground level. And that's how it is with consciousness. And that's why I think consciousness is growing and elevating consciousness is such an important thing for leaders. And I've seen in my 25, 26 years of this, this current incarnation of me, I have seen a significant, though it's more qualitative than quantitative, 
vis-a-vis uh, -vis Brene Brown, who talks about qualitative research, is more qualitative. I've seen I've seen a real difference in the requests I'm getting for content. I used to get more 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 requests for um, tactical things. Right? How to how to write a um, how to write a resume, how to do a job interview. You know, kind of nuts and bolts down in the weeds, down on the first few floors. And in in about the past maybe twelve years, ten to twelve years, I've been getting more and more requests for, um, as you said, um, a, a a big enough conversation. I'm doing a session next week on critical thinking, but it's about expanding our vision in order to encompass the effect of the pandemic on how we work and how we communicate with each other, which is a much bigger conversation than, than how to use Zoom, which mm -hmm. is which is fine, but right, it's 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 a pretty small conversation. And then I've been asked to do a sort of a, a really interesting topic, which I'm still working on, which is how does 21st century le leadership, especially during the pandemic, how do we remold it and redefine it so that it is adequate to the challenges we face? Because the old sort of factory assembly line mindset just doesn't have the capacity. Yeah. Um, and that's certainly what I'm, you know, what I'm looking at. Again, I come from a place of, of working from a place that is not willpower, from getting beyond that, from a different kind of transformation and learning to use things like brain states. Um, you know, I think meditation has mindfulness and meditation have really become popular, but they're definitely not being used to their full abilities, their full capacity. And also sometimes the way that they're taught is actually, I think, destructive to our brains. Okay. Yeah. So, so I like to talk about, you know, brain states and being able to understand that better and being able to use our brains and our consciousness in a, in a greater way and understand that there are, are healing states and rapid learning states and states where we can better access our unconscious and our subconscious um, and to use that, to use more of our kind of mental, not just, I don't know what to call it, but our, <clears throat> our thinking capacity. Oh, sorry. I've got a small furry being who thought I thought was maybe going to jump on top of the <laughs> <laughs> computer. <laughs> well, what you're, what you're saying, uh, uh, I think um, about our, our brains so much of of our traditions don't don't encompass and don't fire off in a, in a positive sense and don't encourage the development of the the extraordinary capabilities of our thinking when it's unfettered yeah, for sure. We're, we're stuck in a kind of a left brain. I mean, we, 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 especially in Western society, have been taught a very left brain approach. Mm -hmm. And we're educated in that. And so we, I mean, there was a lot of talk <clears throat> back when Daniel Pink was writing books about whole brain 
thinking, but we haven't really made much um, movement toward it. And the left brain thinking leaves us pretty disconnected from ourselves and also disconnected from kind of a greater knowledge and a balanced being in balance, being in a, having a balanced brain. Um, and the more we understand that, the more we kind of take that power back, the more we can kind of re-educate ourselves and re, re rewire our brains. Well, I, I read, um, a whole new brain when it first came out and I used drive in my work and years ago at a, a, a barn in the middle of nowhere that was having a sort of a yard sale, I found a phrenology skull. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? With, with, like people, people used to like, you know, feel lumps on your head and like make, make judgments about your, your character and stuff. And the, the first thing I saw was that the, the left side had incredible detail. The right side had like three things, which, which tells me where the focus of the phrenologist was. It was all on the left brain. So yeah, and that's a problem because when we are so left brainer, we think that we need to be, when we're taught to be left brain dominant, right. it actually creates a disconnection in our psyche. It actually creates a situation where we're fighting ourselves. Mm -hmm. Because if you're told to be, if you're told one party is supposed to be dominant over another part of you, and that's not actually natural, that that part has to fight yep. to stay dominant. That part is a fear. It's fear based, right? It's a fear of, oh my gosh, my rational. I've got to keep my rational brain in in charge because this other stuff, this other stuff could take over, and that's not. That's an exhausting place to function from. And that is not whole brain thinking. It is not mentally or emotionally healthy. You know, I, I wrote a piece a little bit ago on the reptilian brain. Yeah. The idea of the reptilian brain, which is still making, still making its way around. <laughs> but there is no reptilian brain. You know, it, it came out of this triune theory from the 1950s. Right. It said, oh, yeah, the, the, rep, the reptilian brain was the first brain to develop. You know, and it's kind of the brain of the instincts, the lower instincts. And then around that developed the mammalian brain, and that's the e emotional level layer. And then around that developed the logical, rational brain. The and prefrontal lobe, right? Yeah, and it's all bunkus. It's like, no, that's not how it is. In fact, our brains are much more similar in terms of um, components with other species. But that's not how it developed. And there is no reptilian brain. But if you set up this idea that you have a reptilian brain, now you're afraid. You, you live in fear of this reptilian brain coming out and taking over. And it's like you've just set this up. You've set your thinking up to do, to like sabotage yourself, to be afraid, to be always in, I call it selfless enemy. You have set yourself up to be selfless enemy. And so you have set yourself up to be constantly fighting against yourself. And so for me in my in the work that I do, a huge shift is to move from self as enemy to self as ally. And that completely changes your relationship to yourself. It completely starts to rewire the brain. Um, it it changes your inner world. 
it and it brings you more inner peace. And that inner peace is the first step to uh, because once you have more inner peace, all that stuff that you were fighting against and was taking up all your energy. Yep. Now you have the ability to take that and focus on what you actually want to focus on. So I had a teacher who said once, you know, stillness, stillness is not the end goal of meditation. Once you get to stillness in meditation, it's what do you do with that stillness? I forget who said, and I'll probably mangle the quote, but uh, is that the, 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 um, the, the main cause of human problems is our inability to sit quietly in a still room. <laughs> I think that's what a lot of people are facing now with the pandemic. You know, there isn't the stuff that keeps them, that keeps them busy and distracted. And so suddenly they're facing things. Yeah. Right. And yeah. it's difficult because emotions are really painful. And, but they're coming up for a reason. And the, the, I think that the thing is, the problem is that people haven't been taught how to work with their emotions or what their emotions are or how their consciousness works or how things like suppression and repression work. And you need to understand all those kinds of things, um, or at least it helps to understand those things. It's like having a, you know, it's like we don't have a manual for our consciousness, no. right? And we need to, we need to understand our emotions and we need to understand that they have a profound effect in our lives, but we also need to change them, change from having a negative relationship with them to an empowering relationship and get ourselves out of that overwhelm and learn, um, I mean, part of the reason that they are so painful is because we haven't been taught how to deal with them. And so what people are doing is they're in this constant struggle, their constant struggle against their emotions, as opposed to learning that, uh, learning more about their emotions and learning that if you learn how to digest them, if you learn how to process them, you actually get the wisdom from the emotions and it will guide you. We've been perhaps kind of um, addicted to distraction. Yeah, addicted to distraction. And right now, um, right now that's gone by the wayside and it's sort of left people realizing, oh, maybe, um, maybe there's some stuff here. But, but it was always there. Yeah. You know, as, mu as much as you put... I mean, I remember talking to one podcast host and she had said that, you know, she had thought that when she put her emotions to the side, when she pushed them to the side, they disappeared. And it's like, no, they don't disappear. No. Right? No. They're still there and they are still affecting your life. You just may be keeping yourself busy that you don't realize it or you don't see it, but it's still affecting your life. And it's a much, a much bigger change or much trans, a transformational way to live to actually learn about them in an empowering way. Absolutely. In my own life, with, with all that comes with that, I was raised in a family that thought emotions were distractions, that, 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 that they were noise, and that those noises got in the way of 
<clears throat> all that we were supposed to be doing, <laughs> all the all the traits of a leader, as as yeah. we started this this conversation, and and as I have for one reason or, or another, as that facade or vault or however you want to frame it has cracked. One of the things that I think I've gotten is that those emotions, you know, as you said, you can, you can tamp them down. You can say, not now I'm busy, go away, leave me alone. I want to watch football, whatever's going on there. But as you said, they don't go away. And for me, though they did not go away, the information I got from my emotions was always muddled. Mm -hmm. It was, I mean, I would, I would, I would be suddenly angry at trivial things. Yeah. And you right? know why, do you know why that is? Go. It, it's, it's, it's because of repression and suppression. So if you think of, if you think of, if you think of our, our consciousness, sometimes you see it represented as an iceberg, right? right. Where the little bit of the little bit that's, that's sticking out of the top, the 10% or so, is conscious awareness. And the 90% is below below conscious awareness. So when you're when you suppress something or you or you repress it, where it's just completely you've done it completely unconsciously, it's like you've pushed it below consciousness, but it's you've put it into maybe an underground reservoir. Yeah. So say you're angry and you push that down somewhere picture this met in this metaphor an underground reservoir of anger right yeah. so it's just sitting there but it's it's also pushing your sad all these all these things that you've repressed and it has a use at the time sometimes because sometimes it's so overwhelming that you have to push it down you can't deal with it at the time but your 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 whole system is seeking health and so it's pushing to come back up so if you get maybe just a little bit angry over something mm -hmm. and now you've got that that emotional resonance of anger and it there's a, a resonance with that underground reservoir and all of a sudden all this anger shoots up right your road rage or whatever because you've tapped that reservoir it's telling you that there's this reservoir of anger that you have there which we all have right well, all these different reservoirs underneath our underneath this underneath our consciousness but it that's why you get that overreaction yeah. to to events i i think that that's a very uh, powerful Im image to uh, capture it for which i am grateful thank you Catherine. <laughs> thank you i have um as i threaten i'm going to ask because you've already answered the a question that i don't have to ask um which which is what you've been talking about so my final question for you, and I know that you don't have children, um, but supposing you did, and at some point in the future, they have children, which are your grandchildren, and the grandchildren who were pretty little, but they come to their parents who are your children, and they say, our teacher told us that the year 2020 was really hard, really tough. How did grandmom do in the year 2020 in other words if you have a legacy for how you handled yourself in 2020 what would you like it to be 
you know, when when the lockdown hit in this year or last year, um, I I made a decision that I would come out of it better physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. So that gave me this framework. And um, it's been, for me, it's been kind of an amazing time where my work has deepened, where um, my my own personal healing and journey has deepened, mm-hmm. my c- connection to something greater than myself has deepened, my physical health um, I got new muscles and <laughs> I'm way, I'm way stronger than I was. You know, I was doing a yoga, yoga, pro, different yoga um, routines. And now I'm in working out much more intensely. And so my whole system, it's like my whole system has changed right. from, from back in March. And I'm, I'm actually quite grateful for it so you know um i think that when you give yourself that framework it changes things and i I think one of the things you know i posted last week the week before was the the idea of you know i may not choose something that comes into my life there's lots of things that i would say yeah no please (laughs) please remove that (laughs) take that out but at the same time i can say what can I learn from this? How can I come out of it better? Right? And it's not what 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 should I learn from this, which I think is a, a smaller question, but what can I learn from this? Right. What can I take from this? What? How can I ensure that whatever comes my way puts me in a position of growth, of betterment, of more happiness, of more peace, all that kind of stuff? And we can prepare better for that for those opportunities, I think, if we are more mindful and if we are if we can let go of a little judgment, if we can let go of a little uh, illusion of control, if we can start to open up that vault of our feelings and face it courageously and with love. And if we cannot fight against ourselves, but as you said earlier, become our own ally. Yeah. Yeah. That shift from self to self to self as enemy, which is where most people are to self as ally. That's a big one. And then just, um, yeah. Changing the relationship to the self yeah. is really what I'm doing because everything comes out. I mean, we're so taught many of the leaders that I work with are talking about, Oh, I want to serve others. I want to serve others. Um, but that sometimes gets it kind of backwards. You need to start with the self. You need to start with, you know, you have to make sure that your own cup is filled up first yeah. so that you're giving from overflow. Because if you're giving, and, you know, there's a, I saw one research study that said uh, sort of a 96% burnout rate in leaders. Yeah. That's that's incredible, right? And that says not, that says they're not starting with the self. They're not filling up first. When you fill up first your own cup, then the quality of giving and the quality of living that you'll be doing is different. Absolutely. Yeah. You won't have to be trying to motivate people because they'll just see it in you. Um, You won't have to be trying to serve people. I mean, a lot of that is sometimes 
we want to help people. And um, that's not necessarily always our role, right? It's better to have the people who come to you who are inspired to, to inspire yourself first and then let, let people see that and the ones who want the change, want the growth, come. And they will, I think, see it there with you and in you rather than you having to market it to them right mm -hmm. thank you Catherine. thank you very much thank you mac um enjoy your two little kitties thank you i saw i suppose the uh, that was the boy who was running on the back of your chair yep <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's funny he's cool <laughs> Great, great, great. I'm so glad we finally got to talk. And um, <clears throat> now I have another new friend who someday I hope to meet face to face. <laughs> yes. And uh, keep on, keep on keeping on, as the song says, okay? Okay. Thanks for giving us a listen. As we move forward, with this situation, with this thing that's us, let's never forget that we are all in this together. No matter what else happens, we're all in this together. Thank you. <laughs>